Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. My name's Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been around for a while, you know that uh, Pastor Bailey has been preaching through Romans. And uh, we're in Romans 10, but he's out of town. He and his wife are, are gone uh, this weekend at a family uh, gathering. And so he just asked me to pick up where he left off and to keep moving forward. So that's where we are today. We're going to be in Romans 10. And I'm going to be focusing especially on verses um, 11 to 15. But I want to read, I want to back up, and because this passage we're looking at today kind of falls in the middle of an argument, so I want to back up and kind of catch the bigger argument. The thing about Romans, where we are, Romans 10, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about, um, over and over again, the Apostle Paul's hammering at this idea, the truth, that Jew and Gentile, there is no, there are not two separate ways of salvation for Jew and Gentile, Right? And Jews aren't more savable than Gentiles. So both of those things is what he's hammering on. Both are humbled at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And both have hope at the cross, the foot of the cross of Jesus. Both things are true. And um, this argument falls in the middle of that. And some of the elements of this make sense when you see that that's what he's trying to do. So open up your Bible, I'm going to read starting in verse 5, but again, we're really going to focus starting in verse 11. So Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks speaks as follows, do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved." How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I said, we're going to start, we're going to focus on verse 11, but there's a couple of things I want to say in the part that I read before that. I'm not going to re-preach what Tim preached, don't worry. But there are a couple points that I think are helpful to point out. 
Number one, he says in verse eight, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Do you see that? The word of faith which we are preaching. Now, unfortunately, that little phrase, the word of faith, has been co-opted, hijacked, stolen, twisted, and put to really bad use in churches today, all over the world, really. Have you ever heard of word of faith churches or word of faith teaching, right? Uh, Men like Kenneth Copeland, uh, if you've ever heard of him, have been very instrumental uh, in someone's hands <laughs> in promoting this. I think he's an incredibly wicked man. Word of faith is, has the word of faith teaching, right, that goes by that name, teaches that you have the power to create reality through your words. Right? The, the crass kind of shorthand version of that is name it and claim it, right? Prosperity gospel, but it's even worse than that. It's that literally you have the power to create either good things or bad things with your words, right? So if you say good things, then you, you can manifest in reality Good things. If you say bad things, you can't, gotta watch out, you can't say bad things because if you say bad things, you'll manifest in the reality bad things. So if you say, oh, I hope I don't get sick, I hope I don't get the COVID, well, that, you, can't, you can't say that because you just, you just said words that could manifest in reality and you'll get COVID. So you gotta only always say good things. If you say good things and believe good things and good things will have you literally, listen, this is new age pagan gobbledygook seriously and it's incredibly destructive we are not God who has the power to create and destroy with his mouth the Lord with his words the Lord only so I just wanted to bring that up, right? It's all over the place. And you hear this word, word, this phrase, word of faith, and you think, yeah, I heard something about that. That's, yeah, word of faith. What does that mean? You start looking up word of faith, and this is what you'll find. And it's utterly destructive, and it's pagan, literally pagan. It's magic. It has nothing to do with the Lord, and it certainly has nothing to do with what he's talking about here, for crying out loud, Okay? Now, here's the next thing in that same verse. The word of faith, he says, which we are what? Which we are preaching, okay? So the word of faith, all he's saying there is there is a message that has to do with faith. Remember, it's always faith. And he's gonna open this up for us again in this passage today. Believe, 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 call on the Lord, believe the righteousness that comes by faith. It's a message that comes that, that has as its content the command and the call to believe. That's what the word of faith is. But notice what he says. It's the word of faith that we are preaching. 
Now that word preaching, we take it for granted, we brush it aside, we don't think about it. But that word preaching is really important. Here's what the word preaching means in this verse, right? Preaching, this word preaching comes from the idea of a a herald, a herald. What is a herald? We don't have heralds anymore. You guys, kids remember you read, you know, uh, Robin Hood books and watched King Arthur movies and all this kind of stuff, right? And in those days you have the, uh, you've got a king and then you've got a man who comes into the town and there's someone with him who blows a trumpet, right? And that gets everybody's attention and everybody's supposed to come and listen to the herald. The herald is the one who has a message. And it's a message that comes from the king, right? And so the herald has authority. He has an office. And he proclaims the message of the king. And because he's proclaiming the message of the king, the message has authority, the herald has authority. You're not allowed to not listen, okay? That's that's what a herald is. That's what that word preaching means. That's what it means. It is the official, authoritative, proclamation of a man who has authority. It's not his authority, it's authority that comes from the king. But he stands in the place of the king and he proclaims the message of the king, okay? He doesn't get to make up the message. He doesn't get to decide whether he will become a herald or not. He is appointed, he's ordained, he's sent. And the message has authority. This is why we hate preaching today. because we hate authority. We hate authoritative proclamations. We live under them. We just were reminded by Brian Bailey about an authoritative proclamation, (laughs) you know. We don't like them. The word preaching, preaching is an authoritative proclamation. And it bears all the authority of God when it's in accord with what God has said, right? Now that, think about what he says. We're gonna jump ahead for a second up to verse 14. And he really opens up this whole idea of what it means to preach. Because he says in verse 14, he's gonna talk about calling on the name of the Lord, right? In verse 14, how then will they call upon him in whom they've not believed? We'll talk about that more in a minute. In order to call on him, you have to believe that he'll hear you and then he can help you. So you, you, you believe and you call upon the name of the Lord. How, they, how will they call upon him if they have not believed? Look what he goes on to say. How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? That makes sense, right? You don't just believe vaguely by kind of this vague feeling of something. You have to hear a message and believe it Then he says, and how will they hear without a preacher? See that? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach, verse 15, unless they are sent? You see, that goes against everything that we think as as modern American Christians about preaching. Anybody can preach. Anybody can preach. Anyone can appoint themselves to preach, that's what we think. 
But what this says is, the, in order to hear, you have to have a preacher. In order to preach, in order to have a preacher, you have to have a man who is sent, commissioned, ordained, appointed, given authority, because why? That's what preaching is. Does that make sense? Now, there is another kind of quote-unquote preaching uh, that's not quite the same. You see this in Acts chapter eight. Let me just read this to you. Acts eight, verse four, I think. Yeah, Acts eight, four says this. Therefore, those who had been scattered, this is when the church was uh, persecuted, when Stephen was stoned in, in Jerusalem and the church was scattered. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about It says, preaching the word. But that's a different word for preaching than the word that he uses in in Romans 10. The word he uses in Acts for preaching the word is more like uh, gossiping the word. Gossiping the word. In other words, this isn't the authoritative proclamation of an ordained man standing and proclaiming in, in the place of God himself with authority preaching, right? This is gossiping. Now, normally when you think of gossiping, normally you don't gossip good news. <laughs> right? Normally you gossip bad news. Hey, did you, did you hear about what happened? Did you hear what, that, what, what he did? Did you hear what she said? And it's always bad. Gossiping, you know, is bad. But this kind of gossiping is good. (laughs) Think about what that would look like, right? Hey, did you hear what happened? No, what happened? Jesus was raised from the dead. What? Yeah, I know. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> you know? That's, that's, what it, that's the gossiping of the word that, that all of everybody should be doing. So if you think of preaching as, oh, that thing that I have to stand up and I have to, you know, that's not what you're called to. You are called, everyone who names the name of Christ should be gossiping the gospel, should be talking about it all the time. Stop gossiping bad stuff, start gossiping good stuff, right? So that's the kind of preaching that you can do. But there is a preaching that has authority, that has a commission, that has uh, an office. That's what he says at the end of Romans 10, this 14 and so on, and that's what he said, that's what he means by this word of faith that we are preaching, Now, what is that? What is the message of faith? What is it that he's preaching? And then we'll get into our text for today. Look what he says. Verse nine. Here it is. Here's what he's been preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's, that's what we just confessed together in that question from the Heidelberg Catechism. What an amazing statement. 
right? That Jesus gives me his righteousness and God treats me as if I've never sinned. That's what that means. That's the message. Now, he's gonna prove that. And so here we come today to verse 11. He says, for, verse 11, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, a couple things to notice here. He's, number one, he's arguing with you. That's why he keeps, you see in this, in this text, just in the text today, verse 11 to uh, 15, there are four fours. <laughs> All right? Not the number four, but four fours. That means he's arguing. He's giving you reason. He's, he's trying to change the way you think. And he's giving you proof. He's making assertions, but whoever asserts must prove, Right? So he's making, he's giving you proof for what he has said and why he has said and why, why what he has said and what he's preaching is true. How does he go about proving what he has just said? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. How does he prove that? Verse 11, how does he prove it? Hmm? He quotes the Bible. Yeah. Here's an idea. <laughs> make an argument, make a point, and prove it from the Bible. That's what, that's what he's doing all over the place in the book of Romans. That's what he does over and over and over again, just in these little verses that we're looking at today. He makes a point, and then he, he quotes the Bible. You see what it says? The scripture says, and so here he is, a man, remember, a herald with authority from God, with a commission to preach a message, and he says, here's the message, and here's where I'm getting that message. I'm, I didn't make this up. I got this from the Bible, right? Now, where in the Bible did he get this? It says the scripture, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That comes from Isaiah 28, 16. So what Bible is Paul preaching from? Hmm? So we think, oh yeah, the Old Testament, right? And I'm sorry, but that, I mean, we're never gonna, we're not gonna stop using that term, but that's really an unhelpful term, the Old Testament. Because who wants the old thing when you've got the new thing? right? The old, old, the term Old Testament doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. A, a term close to it appears in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the Mosaic Covenant, right? The covenant that God made with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He, talks, he calls it the Old Covenant in contrast with the New Covenant. Okay, but that's not a phrase that applies to everything from Genesis to Malachi, that, but that's how we think of it. We think, oh, Old Testament means everything from Genesis to Malachi. And we know that that's all old and we don't have anything to do with that anymore, right? But what is it that the Apostle Paul is preaching from? What Bible did he have? 
the, the Hebrew scriptures, okay? I'm going to use that term instead of Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is our Bible. It was the Apostle Paul's Bible. That's all he had. That's what he was preaching from. He's always arguing. He's proving his point from the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. All right? Remember the verse where uh, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired, God-breathed. What Scripture is he talking about? What scripture did Timothy have? The, sorry, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, right? So as he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine. That's what he's doing. He's proving doctrine from the Hebrew Bible, right? For doctrine, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. We have, a, we have a big Bible, not just a little Bible, all right? And it's all useful, and this is the authority that the Apostle Paul is standing on. It's not his, he's not making this up, He's proving over and over again that what he's getting just comes, it's what the prophets have said. It's what Moses said. It's what the law says. It's what the Psalms say. Over and over again, that's what he's doing. And so he quotes it, and here's what he says. Here's his proof. For the scripture says, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to believe? There are, you know, belief is simple, but it's not simplistic, right? What does it mean to believe? The first thing, what, what's the first thing you have to have in order to believe a message? It's what he says down in verse 14 and 15. What do you have to have in order to believe a message? You gotta have what? The message, <laughs> okay? You have to have the information. You have to have the facts. You have to know what are we talking about here, right? And so there's a declaration of the truth to you and you say, okay, I'm convinced that that is true. Is that, is that all that faith is? Being convinced that something is true? No. Scripture says, remember, the demons believe and tremble, right? They know it's true, they know, they know very well it's true. But what else is faith? Not just assenting to the fact that it's true, that's important, but it's also loving the truth. Loving it. I don't just assent that there, this, this is factually correct. I love the fact that what, you know, I love this truth, I love this message. But it's even more than that. What else is it? Casting yourself on the truth. Committing yourself entirely to the truth. Relying on it entirely for your hope. That's what faith is. Believing the message, loving it, and then just 
abandoning yourself, casting yourself on it as your entire hope. That's what he means when he says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There are a lot of you who, growing up in this church, who have the knowledge of the truth, right? You know, you, you know, you know the facts. You know the Bible, you've been catechized. You can, you've memorized scripture, you know the facts. Do you love the truth? And have you cast yourself completely on it? If you do, he says, and whoever does that, anybody who does that, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So that means if you believe in Jesus, um, your husband will never forget your birthday. Uh-oh. No, that's not what it means. If you believe in him, the picnic will never get rained out. <laughs> what does he mean when he says whoever believes in him will never be disappointed? What does that mean? What is he talking about? Is he saying that if you believe in him, everything will always go your way? No. Did everything always go the Apostle Paul's way? Beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, lashed, left for dead, starving. Oh yeah, that's what he wanted, right? No. So that's not what it means. What does it mean? It means whoever believes in him will not be disappointed on judgment day on judgment day. There is a judgment day and it's coming and you will stand before God. You will stand before God and you will present to him your case, right? Remember what he's been saying? The Jews, the case they present to God is, we have a righteousness that we have worked up and we've done it according to the law and you know, since the day I was born, I've done everything and That's gonna, they're gonna be disappointed <laughs> when they get to judgment day. And so will you if that's what you're standing on. But if you say, I have nothing. I am nothing. I have nothing. I deserve all of your righteous wrath. I deserve death, the judgment on my sin. But Jesus... Jesus died for people like me and I believe him. I know it's true, I love it and I've cast myself on him and then God will say, yes. You won't be disappointed, you won't be put to shame. You won't be left hanging. You won't be embarrassed by having gotten it wrong on judgment day. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He is able to save you completely. Completely. He won't let you down. Jesus Christ is righteous and all of that righteousness comes to you if you believe in him. He's gonna keep on arguing. Look what, look what he says next. The next verse, we're in Romans 10. Uh, 
Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Right? So he's picking up on that word from Isaiah, the whoever word. Remember, that's part of the thing he's arguing. No, this, this applies to Jew and to Greek. It's whoever, whoever believes in him. So there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile are completely at the same level when it comes to standing before God. We are all of us licking the dust at Jesus' feet. That's where we are. And by the way, there's something for us to learn here, isn't it? Because the, the, the racial animosity between Jew and Greek is the most intense racial animosity that has ever existed in the history of the world. I mean, come on. Turn on the news. Turn on the news. What are they doing? They're blowing each other to bits. Okay? What he says here is there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. So if if God can deal with that racial animosity in the gospel, how does that apply to all the other little racial animosities? Or cultural, or economic, or social, whatever. He's already done the big one. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now there's a, there are a couple of different ways in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. He's gonna mention one here in a second. But he has already taken pains, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, to make this point that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in their sin. Okay? He does this in Romans 3. Listen to this. Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? (laughs) Who's the we when he says are we better than they? The Jews. He's a Jew. He's writing as a Jew. This is where he is in the argument. And he says, are we Jews better than they? Who are the they? The Gentiles, right? Are we better than they? Answer, not at all. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, so here he goes again, long string of quotes from the Hebrew Bible, right? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So that means not you. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about both Jew and Greek. There is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. They're all under sin. There is no distinction between black and white. We're all under sin. 
No distinction between rich and poor, no distinction between educated, uneducated, east, west, whatever. There is no distinction. We are all at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of God, licking the dust, all the same. You understand? How can one person who's licking the dust be better than the guy next to him who's also licking the dust? Under the judgment of God, equally, equally. The only difference, if there's a possible difference, is those who have the truth and have heard it all their lives and whose culture has taught it to them all their lives are, equal, are, are even more so because they should know better. So that's where we are. We should know better. So no, we're all under sin. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. But the point that he actually makes in, in chapter 10 here goes beyond that. He says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, not just because we're all under sin, which is true. He's already made that point, but here's another one. For the same Lord is Lord of all. The same Lord is Lord of all. Now, what Lord is he talking about? What Lord, who is he talking about here when he says the same Lord? Who is the Lord? Who is he? If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord. That's who he's talking about. Not just a nebulous generic God, but Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, uneducated, educated, whatever. Jesus is Lord of all. This is not the white man's religion. He is Lord of all. He made them all. He made us all. He has authority over us all. And therefore, what? What is the point he's making? The point he's making is, therefore, he's able to save anybody. Anybody and everybody. Whoever is what he says. He's able to save anybody. Yes, we're all under sin, but yes, he's the Lord of all. And he can save anybody, anyone who calls on him. Now look at what he says. The same Lord is Lord of all. And then he says this. What kind of Lord is he? What does it say? Abounding in riches for all who call on him. This is why he's able to save you. He's abounding in riches. Now think about this. The Lord is rich. Um, not many of us are rich. You know what I mean. People Men who get rich in this world get rich by doing what with their wealth? Giving it away? No. Men who get rich in our world get rich by keeping it. <laughs> they hoard it and they keep it. 
And so we think, okay, that's what rich men do. So God, it says, is rich. So he must be a stingy miser. He must hoard his wealth. But that's not what the Lord does. But listen, I know, many of us, maybe all of us, deep down in our gut, this is what we think. We think the Lord is, of course, he's stingy. But now, the Apostle Paul likes this word riches. He uses it all the time. For God. And I want to I hit your head a few times kind of hard with this word. So here, let me, let me show you. Back in Romans 2, just, just listen, don't try to follow. Listen, Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? What is the Lord rich in? Kindness, tolerance, and patience. He's rich with kindness, tolerance, and patience. Do you think lightly of it? You take it for granted? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Or Romans 9, 23. He did so to make known the riches of his glory, the riches of his glory. He's rich in glory. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's rich in, in wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians, verse one, or chapter one. Listen to this. Don't listen to that. <laughs> Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he, and you wanna know what it says? Lavished on us. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So that means that's yours. Whatever he's talking about, it's yours. It's an inheritance. Chapter two, verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Chapter two, verse seven. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter three, verse eight. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Can't even begin to wrap your, your head around this is what he's saying. Unfathomable, too deep to measure. That's how rich he is. 3.16, he says, in his prayer, 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. But what? You think he's stingy. You think he's stingy. Well, where did you get the idea that God is stingy? Did you get it from the Bible? Is that why you're reluctant to pray? You know he's not going to listen to you. He doesn't like to listen to you. He's stingy. Where did you get that idea? You didn't get it from the Bible. You know where you got it from? We're born with this idea deep in our heart. You know why? Because that's what the devil said to Eve. God's stingy. Remember? Remember that? He doesn't want you to have this because he's stingy. He's mean. He's nasty. Come on. Come to me and I'll give you everything. But the Lord, well, you know. Pinched. Stingy. Miserly. That's a lie. The Lord is rich. What it says is, Romans 10, abounding in riches for all who believe. For all who call on him. Overwhelming abundance of mercy, grace, kindness, patience, tolerance. Don't let them steal that word from you. Tolerance, he puts up with you. Not like a stingy, irritated grandpa puts up with you. (laughs) Okay? Because it's kind and it's merciful and it's patient. And therefore, he is able to save everyone who calls on him. For, he's going to prove it again by quoting from the Bible, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There it is. Authoritative proclamation from Scripture, from the herald's mouth, from God, with God's authority, if you call on the name of the Lord, whoever you are, whatever sin you've committed, whatever background you have, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is call out to him, Lord, save me. Now that is an act of faith, right? You're not going to call out someone to save you if you think they can't save you. So to call on the name of the Lord is to believe in him. That's why he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a believing call. Please, Lord, save me. Here I am. I'm yours. I'm, I'm, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. Would you save me? Save you from what? from your sins. Another way to put that is to save you from God. To save you from God. Call on God to save you from God. Does that make sense? Why? Because God is holy and just and righteous and you are not and you deserve death and destruction and judgment from his hand. But the only one who can save you from God is God. So call call on him to save you from 
the wrath of God. And he is so, so richly abundant in grace to do so. The weakest faith, the weakest faith. Because it's not the strength of your faith. It's not faith, some mystical, magical force. It is Jesus who saves everyone who calls out to him. Here's what he says. Again, verse 14. We've already seen it. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom, whom, in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach if they're not sent? And again, he's gonna prove this from scripture just as it is written How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now there, this is where we'll end before we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. There, he's quoting from Isaiah 52. That little line that he quotes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things comes from Isaiah 52 verse seven. And I want us to see this. Because here's how, here's how these quotes from the Old, <laughs> Old Testament work. Here's how the quotes from the Hebrew Bible work. Okay? They're not just um, random. And when you, when you hear a quote from the Hebrew Bible, you should think, hey, I can look that up. And then you should go look it up. And the context and the, and the the bigger weight of that quote should, should come to bear on what you're reading in the New Testament, okay? It's like when you, when you have a, a hyperlink and you click it and like one word becomes, you know, a page. You know what I'm saying? It's just like that. So you click on how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things and then you open up to this, uh, Isaiah 52, seven. Listen to this. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now you all know what the word gospel means, right? It means good news. Who announces what? What's it say? Peace. Not some kind of karma mind trick, but peace with God. Who announces peace and brings good news of what? Happiness? Well, that can't be in the Old Testament. It can't even be in the Bible. We all know that can't be. The good news is a, is a message of happiness. Is, does your gospel have happiness in it? Happiness, happiness. Who announces what? Salvation. And says to Zion, what? Jesus is Lord. That's not what it says, but that's, it is what it says, actually, right? Your God reigns. Jesus is Lord. It's the same message. It's the same fact. It's the same truth. He reigns, 
He rules. He has authority. That means he can save you. It's his law. It's his law you've broken. He's the only one who has authority to save you and the power and the will. He will save you. Look at the rest of what this says. Listen, verse eight. Your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, He's bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. God has rolled up his sleeve and gone to work to save whoever, whoever, whoever will call upon him. No, no exclusions, no one, no hopeless cases, no, whoever. He, he's got a strong arm and he shows it to you in the gospel. <laughs> His arm is not too short that it cannot save. It's not weak. He is filled with power and riches and kindness. Why in the world, why in the world would you, would you be stubborn and content with living out your life under the wrath of God? He's ready, he's willing, he's able to save you and to keep on saving you. Not just from the penalty of your sin, but from the power of your sin. Let's pray together. Lord, would you please have mercy and give us this faith. We are so hopeless and so weak and so powerless that we can't even rightly trust you. And so we thank you that you have given us promises that you will work in us everything you want from us. And so we call out to you, Lord, just, we call out to you. We call out to you. Have mercy on us sinners. And now feed us, we pray, from your table, just as you feed us from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.